God, I thank you for this privilege to join brothers and sisters in Christ who recognize that our history matters, that there have been men and women led by the Holy Spirit who deeply loved the Lord Jesus Christ, many of them unto death, and that their lives are worthy of study because we learn something about you in their lives. We learn about devotion. We learn about faith. We learn as we read their commentaries. We learn as we read their treatises on different things. And, and God, as we think back about 500 years ago with the Reformation, we are reminded of the power of the gospel. That by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, we can be made right with you. We love this truth, and we thank you for it. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Should you ever make it to the uh, University of Geneva, there stands a stone wall about 100 yards in length uh, commemorating the Reformation. At the center of this wall, there stands four statues about 16 feet tall of the most illustrious uh, reformers. Uh, From left to right are William Farrell, John Calvin, Theodore Beza, and John Knox. And etched in stone on these walls on either side of them is the phrase, post tenenbrox lux, which means uh, after darkness, light. It was the motto of Geneva, and it was a motto for the Reformation. The question might fairly be asked, what does that mean? What does after darkness, light refer to? Many people assume that the obvious answer would be that it refers to the dark ages, the things that you learned about perhaps in in high school or or college. Uh, I spent a great deal of time in my church history class debunking this idea that there was ever a so-called dark age. Uh, I think it's important that we actually rehabilitate the Middle Ages and not call them dark. It was the Middle Ages, after all, that saw the rise of the university, advances in science and technology, the start of capitalism, and, and much progress in areas of morality. For instance, slavery being abolished actually during the Middle Ages. Historically, this term was used by those in the Renaissance and Enlightenment who wanted to degrade those who came before them, call themselves brilliant, were the enlightened ones, and call them dark. And it was all because of their view of the church uh, during that time. So thus, while a sweeping claim of darkness to talk about the Middle Ages is categorically unsustainable, there are ways in which I think it's an apt description Theologically speaking, it may be very appropriate to refer to the Middle Ages as dark. One thinks of the Western Schism, perhaps, where three popes vied against each other to see who was actually uh, the pope. And then there were these uh, three specific popes, one of them being Pope Gregory VII, who wrote Dictatus Papi, claiming that popes could actually depose emperors. Or then there was Boniface VIII who wrote Unum Sanctum, and in that he said that your eternal salvation hinges upon your obedience to the Pope. And then there was Innocent III who had the audacity to say of himself that he is lower than God, but higher than man. I think there's a lot of evangelical pastors who promote themselves in that way. I'm a little lower than God, a little more than you, maybe. <laughs> Along with papal abuse came simony, giving church offices to family, lay investiture, a controversy over who had the right to install bishops. Is it the emperor or is it the pope? And worst of all, 
indulgences, which we'll talk about later on tonight, a way of kind of buying your way out of punishment. There's widespread corruption in the upper ranks of the church. That, that is what we all kind of have an idea about when we think about the Middle Ages. And all of these, I think, were examples of theological darkness during that time. But I think if the Reformers could pick just one aspect that, that would symbolize what post-Tenebras Lux means, I think they would point to the doctrine of justification by faith, the light of which had been hidden under a bushel of works righteousness for some time. The Reformation was first and foremost a return to Scripture. One of the other cries that they had was ad fontes, which meant back to the sources. Scripture alone is going to be our authority, and we want to know what God has to say to us. Martin Luther placed this doctrine at the center of the Reformation because he said, if this article stands, the church stands. If this article falls, the church falls. And John Calvin similarly said that justification by faith is the main hinge on which religion turns. It's often alleged or assumed that the doctrine of justification by faith alone went into hibernation after Paul. It was not reawakened until Martin Luther charged up on the scene, nailing his 95 theses into the church door at Wittenberg. But the big idea tonight, the thing I really want us to get, is is I'm going to challenge this idea by tracing the doctrine of justification through the early church, up through Augustine, and then tracing what happens to this doctrine during the Middle Ages, leading up to the Reformation, ultimately to show that justification by faith has always existed, even in the bleakest of times. So that's our main objective. Uh, To do this, we're going to spend a great deal of our time in primary source texts and seeing what these people actually thought. Before we get started, though, I want to give two presuppositions to this lecture. First, Paul believed that justification is forensic. That is, it's a legal declaration whereby a sinner is forgiven of sins, and they are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. It's what Josh was talking about earlier. It's this great exchange idea, this, this where Christ gets our sins, we get his righteousness. That was Paul's view. Um, It's the heart of the gospel that God justifies the ungodly. Paul really shows this in Romans 3 through 5, Galatians 2 and 3. Second, and far more challenging, I think, for us tonight, is the belief that justification by faith alone is the sine qua non of Christianity. That is, a person cannot be saved in any other way than by faith alone. I'm taking a bit of a philosophical step here because there's people in church history who may have denied justification and yet seen very much to be a Christian. And so I'm taking my, my cue from John Owen who said, men may really be saved by that grace which doctrinally they do deny. And they may be justified by the imputation of righteousness they deny to be imputed. Praise God that there's people out there whose hearts, in their hearts, they, they know the Lord through faith even if their, their lips don't attest to that. If I'm right that justification is a cynical nun of salvation, and if Jesus actually meant it when he said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, then I think we can safely assume that there's always been a time when people who uh, have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Leslie Newbegin was onto this when he defined the church as that community which in an on broken succession from Abraham, lives by the faith to which the Bible bears witness and continues to testify in the face of all other claims that it is in this faith 
that the truth is to be known in all its fullness. So tonight, I want to focus on that unbroken succession of those who live by faith. Wherever you find a Christian, wherever you find one who is born again by the blood of the Lamb, you find a person who's been justified by faith alone. The early church knew this, and it continued to pulse with the heartbeat of Paul's message. Many scholars have disagreed with this, though. One of them was Christopher Stendhal, who was a professor at Harvard, uh, even when, when Wayne Grudem was there uh, in the mid-20th century, who said, quote, It has always been a puzzling fact that Paul meant so relatively little for the thinking of the church during the first 350 years of its history. To be sure, he is honored and quoted, but in the theological perspective of the West, it seems that Paul's great insight into justification by faith was forgotten. This idea gained its most significant voice in the mid-20th century by a guy named T.F. Torrance, who did his Ph.D. under Karl Barth. He wrote a book called The Doctrine of Grace in the Apostolic Fathers. And in that book, he argued that this doctrine of grace, which Paul so eloquently explains in the New Testament, was lost immediately by his successors. That is, they turned from justification by faith alone and grace alone to a doctrine of works righteousness. I think, as we'll see tonight, the evidence points away from Stendhal and Torrance. One of the first documents we have after the New Testament is a letter called First Clement, likely written in the 90s AD by Clement of Rome, who is the third bishop of Rome. It's a letter written to the church at Corinth. Apparently, Paul's letter did not have the impact of straightening up that wayward church because at the close of the century, there was a faction that had risen up and threatened the authority of the elders in that church because of jealousy. If you are a pastor in this room and your congregation is miserably difficult, they're impossible. It feels like Corinth. I mean, take heart. Peter, Paul, and Clement all struggled to pastor churches. People are difficult. So Clement wrote a letter to encourage them to live in accordance with biblical morality. He pointed to them biblical examples of how jealousy shredded relationships. So looking at people like Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, the deaths of Peter and Paul, which he attributed to the jealousy of the Romans. He also looked at those who lived godly lives, people like Noah, Abraham, Lot, and Rahab, in a very Hebrew 11-esque kind of way, culminating, of course, in the quintessential example of Jesus. When Clement came to chapter 32, he, he makes this abrupt stop in his letter. Because all along he's telling them, you need to be moral. You need to follow these examples. And then all of a sudden he throws on the brakes and he says this. Therefore, all were glorified and magnified, not through themselves or through their own works or through righteous actions that they did, but through his will. Therefore, we too, having been called through His will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves, nor through our wisdom, or through our understanding, or through our piety, or through our works, which we did in holiness of heart, but through faith, through which the Almighty God justified all who existed from the earliest time, to whom be glory forever. And ever, all who have ever been glorified have entered through the same gate, justification by faith. Works would not suffice. Righteous actions could not merit life. Our own wisdom, our own understanding, our own piety, our own holiness, none of it was enough. It was justification by faith alone. And, and Clement is making a staggering claim that the, 
Every single person in history, even all the Old Testament examples, were justified by faith in Christ. We do, however, need to balance this comment with his, another, another comment he makes where he says that we are justified by works and not by words. This has led scholars to talk about Clement as a, quote, theologian of paradox, end quote, who is teetering back and forth between works righteousness and justification by faith. This is not a necessary conclusion, though. A British scholar named J.B. Lightfoot, 100, 150 years ago, um, did a lot of work on this in showing how Clement is actually holding James and Paul in tension. He's one of the first theologians in the church to recognize that James says, we're not, we're not saved by faith alone, we're saved by works. And Paul, who champions, we're saved by faith alone. And Clement is actually bringing these two apostles together and bridging the gap between them where he can say both of these in his letters. But, but it's, it's important to know that when he says we're justified by works, that comes in chapter 30, but it's in chapter 32 where he is abundantly clear that we're justified by faith alone. Clement knew this tension well. The clearest expression, though, justification by faith in the second century comes in a letter called the Epistle to Diognetus, a letter about which we know next to nothing of its origin. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know who received it. Yet many gave it a similar uh, accolade to that which Avery Cardinal Dulles gave it when he called it the Pearl of early Christian apologetics. It really stands out in second century literature in its explanation of the gospel. The author was writing an apologetic letter in part to answer Diognetus' question as to why Christianity was new on the scene. If you know the Romans, you know that they didn't like anything that seemed new, anything that was novel. It couldn't be true because they'd say, our gods go back hundreds of years And now you're telling me that the guy we crucified last century was actually God. And nobody before that really knew that. So the charge of novelty was something that early Christians had to answer. And the Epistle to Diognetus answered it well. God took a long time, according to the author, to reveal Jesus because he was waiting for unrighteousness to swell up. Quote, not because of approved, he approved of the former season on righteousness but because he was creating the present season of righteousness in order that we who in the former time had been convicted of our own works as unworthy of life might be considered worthy by the kindness of God in the present time. He continues with this breathtaking passage that I want to read in full. And having revealed our inability to enter the kingdom of God on our own, We might be made able by the power of God. But when our unrighteousness was fulfilled and it was perfectly made known that its wages, namely punishment and death, were to be expected, then the season came in which God determined finally to reveal His kindness and power. Oh, the surpassing kindness of God. He did not hate us, neither did He reject nor bear a grudge against us, but He was patient and forbearing, And because of his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom on behalf, on our behalf, the holy for the lawless, the innocent for the wicked, the righteous for the unrighteous, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else was able to cover our sins except the righteousness of that one? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone. 
Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, the inscrutable work of God. Oh, the unexpected benefits of God. That the lawlessness of many might be hidden in the righteousness of one man. While the righteousness of one might justify many lawless men. In this passage, humanity is painted in the worst possible hues in order to show the exceedingly righteous character of the Son. Where sinful humanity is weak and prone to decay, He is strong and incorruptible. Where humanity is full of impurity and wickedness, He is full of innocence and righteousness. The Son is everything sinful people are not and yet must become. Oh, sweet exchange indeed. If you're looking for the best explanation of the cross outside of Scripture, this might be it. Oh, sweet exchange. Scholars have acknowledged that the epistle to Diognetus is the clearest example of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith in the early church. At this point, we might do well to remember what Stendhal and Torrance said and ask if their theses are even tenable. In Diognetus, there's incontrovertible evidence that those after the New Testament still professed justification by faith alone. Yet one of the most remarkable things of all was that the doctrine of justification was sung in the second century. Martin Luther would say many, many years later, let everyone else write the doctrinal treatises, let me write the songs. Because Martin Luther knew, if I can write the songs, then I can change everyone. Let that be a challenge even to churches. I know there's a lot of them represented here today. What you sing matters. The doctrine of the people in your churches will by and large be determined not by the sermons preached week in and week out that they forget, but it's going to be the songs that they're still singing on Thursday and Friday of that week that are running endlessly in their head. The earliest hymnal comes from the eastern portions of Rome's far grasp and is called the Odes of Solomon. It was likely composed by a converted Jew sometime around A.D. 150. In O29, the Otis writes this, The Lord is my hope. I shall not be confused in Him. For according to His praise, He made me. And according to His grace, even so He gave to me. And according to His mercies, He exalted me. And according to His great honor, He lifted me up. And He caused me to ascend from the depth of Sheol. And from the mouth of of death, He drew me. And I humbled my enemies. And He justified me by His grace. For I believed in the Lord's Messiah and considered Him Lord. I believed in the Lord's Messiah. I had faith in Jesus, which is why I was justified by His grace. 1,600 years later, Charles Wesley would write a stanza that sounds remarkably similar to some of the things that the Otis had written back in the second century. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Other voices joined these in the 3rd and 4th centuries. While writing on justification in the 18th century, John Wesley, Charles's brother, said this, And that we are justified only by this true and living faith in Christ, speak all the ancient authors, especially Origen, St. Cyprian, St. Chrysostom, Hilary, Basil, St. Ambrose, and St. Augustine, by which they take Away clearly all merit of our works and wholly ascribe our justification unto Christ only. John Wesley, as he read the church fathers, 
saw in them a clear and unmistakable tenor of justification by faith. But it was the great Augustine who first argued in depth regarding the doctrine of justification, and it was him that set the trajectory for the next thousand years. It's a popular misnomer to think that the reason why Augustine started writing about justification by faith was because of the monk that showed up from England about the year 400. Around that time, a 40-year-old Pelagius showed up in Rome teaching his version of salvation. In actuality, Augustine had been formulating his thoughts for three or four years at that point. Nevertheless, Pelagius became the whetstone upon which Augustine sharpened his ideas. Essentially, Pelagius taught that God does not command what is impossible to fulfill. So you remember when Jesus in Matthew says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If Jesus said, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you must be able to do it. If you can't do it, then God has given you a command which you can't fulfill. And he's unjust. He's unfair. Paul says that's exactly the point of the law. Remember in Romans 5, Paul says the point of the law is to show us that we couldn't keep the law so that we recognize sin, so we'd recognize our need for a savior. Pelagius thought differently. He wrote a letter to a young girl named Demetrius, pressing her to a moral life. He writes this, When I have to discuss the principles of right conduct and the leading of a holy life, I usually begin by showing the strength and characteristics of human nature. When I have the chance to talk to somebody about a moral life, I usually try to show them your nature is corrupt and you are geared, hardwired because of sinful nature to sin. Writing against those who would have the audacity to say that we, are inabil- we have an inability because of our human nature, Pelagius wrote this, In fact, we act like lazy and insolent servants, talking back to our Lord in a contemptuous and slovenly way. This is too hard, too difficult. We can't do it. We are only human. Our flesh is weak. What insane stupidity. What impious arrogance. We accuse the Lord of all knowledge of being doubly ignorant. First we complain that He commands the impossible. Then we assume that He condemns people for things they cannot avoid. We portray God as working to condemn rather than to save us. Something it is sacrilegious even to suggest. Pelagius was teaching that we have the ability on our own to be righteous. We can live perfect lives because God commanded it. Augustine caught wind of Pelagius' teaching and turned like the full mental arsenal of his capabilities on Pelagius. You don't want a guy like Augustine picking you out of the crowd and writing against you. It just doesn't end well for you. August, um, he, he wrote many things against Pelagius because he believed that Pelagius' views are incompatible with the gospel, which they are. The very nature of the gospel is under siege. Fundamentally, natural man believes that he can fulfill any demands. The spiritual man recognizes his need for grace. Augustine's view of justification begins with his view of human nature. Humanity is corrupted by sin to the point that even our wills are unable to respond to God's grace. Therefore, God had to, in eternity past, elect some who would, by God's grace, have a changed will that would allow them to be saved by faith. The Reformers rightly understood that a proper view of justification by faith must begin with the recognition that the human will is captive to sin because we are, by nature, dead in our trespasses and sins. It's the verses we read from Ephesians 2 earlier. Free will 
only exists to keep one in sin. I heard one pastor say it like this, we don't need free will, we need wills that are set free. Pelagius was dead wrong in his optimistic view of human nature. Several things are clear in Augustine. God elects people to salvation. This is critical to understanding his take on justification. The reason we do not need to merit salvation is because from the beginning to end, salvation is all of grace. Election is of grace, just as justification is of grace. The second thing that Augustine pointed out is that justification is received as God's gracious gift. Augustine says, To believe in him who justifies the ungodly starts from faith, so that good works do not, by coming first, show what a person has deserved, but by following, show what he has received. Whether Augustine adhered to justification by faith alone as formulated in the 16th century is very hard to say. The reality of Christian doctrine is until it goes into the furnace of controversy, it never becomes super clear. So the reason why the Trinity, we we know that from early on in the church, is because that's what was in the furnace in the early part of the church. Nobody was really writing specific uh, doctrinal treatises on justification. Augustine gets close to it, but it wasn't until the 16th century that that doctrine took center stage. Alistair McGrath who wrote a really important book called Justitia Dei, which traces the doctrine of justification, argues that Augustine held justification by love, which certainly fits his M.O. Augustine was the exegete of the double love. Augustine said this, every interpretation you have of Scripture should lead to a double love of God and neighbor. If when you are finished reading your Bible, it does not lead you to love God more and love your neighbor more, you have misunderstood the text. Every text in Scripture. We believe when Paul said all Scripture is God-breathed and useful, Augustine would amen that and say the reason it's useful is because it leads us to love. However, there are traces of justification by faith all throughout his writings, so much so that the Reformers were certain that the great Augustine was on their side. Um, B.B. Warfield made a famous statement that um, in the balance of the Reformation, on one side hung justification by faith, an Augustinian Justification by faith, and on the other, an Augustinian uh, view of the church. And so the Catholics were trying to claim Augustine because of his view of the church, and the Reformers were trying to claim Augustine because of his view of grace, and that's what the struggle really was between, but it was all centered on Augustine. In a breathtaking passage, he wrote this, Love begun is righteousness begun. Love developed, righteousness developed. Great love Great righteousness. Perfect love, perfect righteousness. Love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. Love and righteousness are intimately connected in in Augustine. Um, I, I wish that were more true of us. A lot of people talking about love, but not righteousness. A lot of people talking about righteousness, but not love. But to see that these are intermingled together, I think, would help. Third, Good works necessarily follow justification. Augustine wrote, To believe in him who justifies the ungodly starts from faith, so that good works do not, by coming first, show what a person has deserved, but by following, show what he has received. And who can live righteously and do good works unless he has been justified? And unless a person has been justified, he cannot do good works. Good works follow... 
the, the reformers were fond of talking about the fact that uh, justification is by faith alone, but faith is never alone. That, that's clearly Augustinian. Good works are absolutely essential to Augustine, but it must come after receiving Christ. What, remember what Paul says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. So unless you have faith in Christ, you can't even do good works. Augustine would, would argue. Well, and Paul would argue. Jesus would argue. That's what the Bible says. All right. <laughs> Justification is transformative. This is where we find the one major chink in the armor of Augustine's view of justification. Instead of seeing justification as a forensic declaration, Augustine understood justification as a process of transformation. Essentially, he blurred the distinction between justification and sanctification. For him, justification was both an event as we, and a process. Event, think about it like how, how the reformers would think about it. Event would be justification. Process would be sanctification. In Augustine, these were two sides of the same coin. He wrote, what does justified mean other than being made righteous? Just as he justifies the ungodly means he makes a righteous person out of an ungodly person. The reason for this confusion in Augustine was simple. Augustine did not know Greek. Augustine, one of the greatest minds in the history of church, sent the church into a really bad trajectory because he did not know the biblical languages. In Greek, dikaiao means to declare righteous. In Latin, justificare means to be made righteous. So if you're in this room and you're doing ministry and you've not taken the time to study, this is my seminary plug, you've not taken time to go to seminary, to study, to learn the languages, just know you could set the church on a wrong trajectory for a thousand years. So go to seminary, study, get the languages. Don't be like Augustine. It, so the, the difference is night and day. You have to see how big of a difference. To declare righteous, to make righteous. Declare versus make. Those one words. Night and day. Actually, it's the difference between medieval theology and Reformation theology in that one word. Thus, there's a great irony in Augustine. On the one hand, he closes the door to any notion that we can merit salvation, while on the other hand, he opens the door to all the problems that come flooding in during the Middle Ages, most notably the implications of transformative righteousness. During the Middle Ages is when we have the hardest time demonstrating what we talked about at the beginning, that unbroken succession of justification by faith. But we misunderstand the Middle Ages if we think everybody became a Pelagian. They, they didn't. The truth is far from this, in fact. Medieval theologians saw themselves as trying to stand in the Augustinian stream. However, they were trying to understand where good works fit into the equation of justification. To my knowledge, everyone in the history of the church, except maybe for free grace proponents, have argued that works fit somewhere in the equation of salvation, if just even as evidence, as the Reformers did. Medieval theologians, by and large, believe the possibility of human merit. There's merit that deserves a a reward, de condigno uh, merit, and merit for which a reward is appropriate, de congruo merit. No one can merit condign merit on their own, 
But even unbelievers can, to some degree, earn congruous merit. However, once a person is justified, they can produce condign merit since they have been aided by divine grace. Christ's work on the cross was sufficient to clear the slate of sin, but human merit was still needed to inherit eternal life. So we always use the courtroom drama for the doctrine of justification by faith. So you imagine the person's there, record of debt. What these theologians were saying is, great Christ's death clears away the negative bank account, but it doesn't give you any positive righteousness. See, they didn't have that double imputation idea that you actually are given the righteousness of Christ, so your bank account is overflowing. Instead, Christ just gets you to the zero balance, in essence. Christ's work on the cross was just merely that sufficient. But we need to be careful here. At the Council of Reims in 1148, it was determined, quote, apart from Christ, there is no meritorious human action. So in some sense, it is Christ who still works in you to bring this about, but it still is, is your righteousness as well, in a very real sense. So Christ must do the enabling, but you must still work, and it's your merit. Well, this led to this idea later on. Uh, it gave birth to this idea of the treasury of merit. Here's the train of thought. If people can earn merit, they should be able to like treasure it up. If you're really, really good today and you get a couple extra points, then, then that should hold you over tomorrow if tomorrow is not such a good day. But in the balance sheet of life, if you end with a thousand extra merit points or gold stars or merit badges or thumbs up or A pluses or whatever merit is, is used, the, the measurement merit is used in, then you store that in the treasury of merit. And it doesn't just go away. There's good news, said the medieval theologians. It's stored safely there so that other people whose lives are a little bit lower on the balance sheet, they can dip into that. So if you're in the negative a little bit, you weren't as good as Saint so-and-so, but Saint so-and-so died and they had a couple extra thumbs up on their account, then you can kind of go to the church and have them kind of give you that deposit of extra gold stars and you'll get an A+. Right? Makes total sense. How? How do you tap into the treasury of merit? Well, one of the ways was indulgences. Indulgences were a way that bishops, primarily popes, could apply the leftover merits of previous saints, martyrs, and even Christ himself. People would pay a sum of money to have some of their time shaved off purgatory. Eternal punishment was handled already in justification, right? So I'm not going to go to hell because I'm justified. But now I've got purgatory to worry about. Purgatory remained for most Christians when they died. Indulgences got people out of temporal punishment for a price. So you'll remember the feud between Martin Luther and John Tetzel. John Tetzel was commissioned to go preach in Germany uh, these indulgences from the Pope. And he would come into town and set up his little sideshow. And, and his famous line was, uh, once a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs. I imagine him one day in his, his uh, little notebook writing that down. He's like, that'll preach. That'll preach. <laughs> And he shows up in, in town and, and he does that little ditty. And he's like, you over there, do you remember your grandma? Tell me your grandma's name. Iris. Iris, was that's a beautiful name. You know she's burning in purgatory right now, right? She doesn't have to. Come give an indulgence. You, sir, I see you crying. What happened? Your son died last week. Does he need to be in a thousand years of purgatory? Come pay the price. Yeah, we see it today some, don't we? And this kind of, of preaching 
was obviously destructive to any idea of justification by faith. So you can imagine all these good-meaning people doing this. This gave rise to Luther's 95 theses. I read a meme this week that that said, um, it was Luther, and he said, I've got 95 problems, and Catholic indulgences are all of them. So (laughs) if, if you read the 95 theses, it's basically like, indulgences are dumb. Number two, and they're stupid. Number three, and you're probably going to hell for having these. And Right? Luther did the basic math. If the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth and he loves people like Jesus loved people, why would he not just say, everyone, indulgences for everyone. It's like Oprah giving out cars or something like that, right? Um, Everyone gets indulgences because I don't want to see anybody in hell. If he really had that authority. It's amazing that something so ridiculous had so much steam, but I guess it's just, I mean, health, wealth, gospel today might have some parallels. So there's something rotten in the state of of Rome. Indulgences in the treasury of merit have obvious implications on the doctrine of justification by faith. Either the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for all sins, or it's not. The blood of Christ doesn't just get us 90% there, 99% there. The blood of Christ either gets us there, or we don't have to worry about a fictitious place like purgatory to worry about. It will be hell. If Jesus did not pay it all, you will pay it all. It's the gospel. But if Jesus' atonement was all sufficient, if Jesus paid for our every sin, if we get his righteousness, as Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians 3, then we can have boldness to approach the throne of grace knowing that God is satisfied. God's wrath has been propitiated in the death of Christ. And our justification is bound up, as Paul says in Romans 4, in his resurrection. So if that's true, we don't need indulgences. We don't need the treasury of merit. We don't need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps like Pelagius would argue. All we need is the grace of Christ alone. People like Thomas Bradwardine, who would cry out, By faith we merit God that you receive the immortal reward that is eternal life is grace. Meaning that faith gets us God, which is our greatest treasure. Faith gets us God, and God's grace gets us eternal life. And then there was Gabriel Beale, who said, Because grace makes the sinner acceptable to God, it follows that it also justifies him. What else does this grace do? Beale says this, This grace prompts us to love God above all things and in all things. That is to seek after the glory of God as the goal of every action and to prefer the ultimate good, God, ahead of oneself and everything else. It does not mean that they explained all the terms as we would. It does not mean that they had the exact same view that Martin Luther would have several hundred years later. They were what Heiko Obermann has called forerunners of the Reformation. Luther didn't just stumble upon this. It wasn't like Paul, he died, everyone else forgot the gospel. Hey, here's Martin Luther. There's a train of people, these faithful people. God has always had a remnant. Their voices of hope and truth. The doctrine of grace and justification by faith may have deteriorated in the Middle Ages, but night would soon turn to day. The kindling was set for young Martin Luther to set the world on fire. In conclusion, I want to flip the Reformation slogan post-Tenebras Lux and think for a moment on post-Lucum Tenebra, that is, after light 
darkness. Asking this question, after 500 years of light, are we in danger of returning to darkness? To ask it another way, are we getting tired of beating the drum of justification by faith, fearing that we have overprivileged one doctrine and underprivileged others? I see several threats in that way today. First, the gospel is assumed. James Buchanan, 150 years ago, said this, quote, It may be thought by some that the subject of justification is trite and exhausted. That is one of the commonplaces of theology. It was conclusively determined and settled at the era of the Reformation, and that nothing new or interesting can now be introduced into the discussion of it. I think that's where a lot of Christians are. The gospel is assumed. But if we assume justification by faith, we're headed back to darkness. Every person who will become a Christian must become a Christian because they're told you are a sinner in need of God's grace. You need a right relationship with God, and it's torn because of your sin. And if you don't come to Christ by faith, you will be separated from God eternally in hell. And if that is boring to you, then you totally miss the point of Jesus' coming in the first place. He will be called Jesus because He will rescue His people from their sins. Preaching justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, is the most important thing we can do. Second, faith and works are considered equal. This is a perennial problem for humans. We are hardwired to find our righteousness in our own works. Faith and works are not two equal wings on a plane. They're not two equal tires on a bicycle. I think we could find maybe a better illustration. That's called a penny farthing. I did not know that until this week. But that's what it's called, or a high-wheel bicycle. We need to think of faith and works in this kind of relationship. Where faith is the big wheel that's driving the works. Faith is the the, the front wheel. Faith is what comes first and works follow. But faith is what God wants from his people. And the good works that we do, we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three. I think we need to be aware of the social gospel. The way I see this creeping in most recently is actually through really good, healthy, God-honoring, Christ-exalting ways. There's a return to social justice. Churches and pastors are finally taking seriously the need for racial reconciliation, a more compassionate approach on issues of gender and sexuality. Churches are taking the lead in foster care and adoption. But when those things become the primary thing, when we confuse the fact that Jesus came to die for sinners and we pluck other things out of the gospel and give them an uneven weight, then we will end up hurting those that we're professing to love. The greatest love you can give to any sinful person on the planet is God loves you, sent His Son to die for you, and you can be saved in Him. So while all these other things are good things, we do a lot of good things, but if the good things become the primary thing, It'll be devastating to the gospel. It'll be devastating to the churches. It'll be devastating in every respect. So why these are good things, we can never let them replace the gospel that Christ and Paul told us to preach. 
Hopefully the church has learned her lesson. 500 years ago, fresh light shone forth and changed the world. If we really want to see our world transformed again, then it will happen as people are confronted with their sins and pointed to Christ. It will happen when people are reminded that the greatest thing is a right relationship with God. It will happen when we privilege again the doctrine of justification by faith. Let's pray. Father, I believe that everyone in this room, even believers, we are so tempted to let our works speak for themselves. It's like Paul said to the Galatians, who's bewitched you? You were running a good race. Lord, I'm sure there are people in this room who feel the ebb and flow in their lives of closeness to you and farness from you based on how good their day went. But justification by faith reminds us that we've been declared righteous in your sight. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. God, let that truth, let us be reminded of that truth in a way that does lead to transformation, in a way that does lead the issues out in good works. But let us never forget the basics of the gospel, the essence of the gospel. Christ Jesus came to die for sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Thank you for giving us the gospel. Thank you for giving us men and women in history who have reminded us how precious it is. And Father, I pray for the rest of this conference that our hearts can be rewarmed to the things of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.